0: Welcome to another episode of Neuropodcases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Neuropodcases. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined again by Dr. Regan Cooley, who is a neurologist with a special interest in stroke neurology. Hi, Regan.
1: Hi, Dr. Williamson. Thanks for having me back. Always oh. a pleasure.
0: Oh, well, thank you for, for coming back. So um, today we're going to talk about a topic that um, I know you deal with uh, in your everyday clinical practice, how you approach a young adult who presents with a stroke. Um, so to get things started, I thought it was a roadmap for the episode. We'll start by talking about what we mean by uh, young stroke uh, in, in an adult, and then talk about some of the sort of clinical clues that can, uh, can help differentiate a stroke from some of the mimics in this age group. And then we'll talk about some of the etiologies and end with a couple of uh, case discussions. So to, to begin with, uh, what, when you're seeing a patient presenting with a stroke, what sort of age range would it be that you'd start to consider them as being a young stroke patient?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, typically the young stroke in the literature is looking around age 45. Um, however, we all know that not all 45 year olds are the same physiologically based on comorbidities lifestyle and those sorts of things. And that, that can kind of take a strict cutoff for an age as kind of the inappropriate um, measure to consider a young stroke. I typically use age 55 after discussion with hematology in our department, but that is based on kind of the thrombophilia workup. But each patient has to be considered on their own. So if they're a 45 year old with you know a 30 pack year history of smoking and an LDL of 4.8, that's not quite considered a young stroke.
0: Okay. And obviously in this age group, um, recognizing that a younger adult might be having a stroke can be quite challenging. What are the main conditions you see that might mimic a stroke in a younger patient? And how do you differentiate these at the bedside? (laughs) Uh, Yeah,
1: it can can be very difficult, actually. A lot of people present as stroke, you know, with a somewhat semi-acute onset of a, a focal deficit. The main things that we see in young people that are mimics would be something like migraine, Uh, specifically hemiplegic migraine, the genetic diagnosis. Although there are many migraines with motor aura, sensory aura, visual aura that without a good examination certainly can sound like a stroke over the telephone or to the triage uh, or EMS in fact. Um, You also Mm -hmm. think about things like a postictal state from a seizure. Uh, Vertigo for any of the causes of peripheral vertigo often comes in as a stroke alert Mm -hmm. Um, and the bedside physical exam using the HINTS exam can help differentiate that. And then uh, conditions like RCVS uh, and PRESS, hypertensive encephalopathy, hypertensive crisis, those sorts of things. And unfortunately, um, tumor presenting as a stroke is not that uncommon in a young adult as well. Mm -hmm. You get more rare things like, you know, stroke like migraine after radiation therapy, smart syndrome. Mm -hmm. Uh, And often uh, you do get kind of neuropsychiatric presentation and functional neurology. Uh, with significant overlay, and you can use things like the Hoover sign, inconsistency, um, downgoing planters, or the inconsistencies to their facial droop where it appears they're pulling their lips down rather than,
0: you know, true weakness. Okay, excellent. So before we discuss some of the causes of stroke in young adults, I thought it might be useful to first of all remind ourselves of some of the common causes in the older population and how you investigate for these in clinical practice. So, um, what are the causes of stroke that you commonly see? And what are the tests you do to screen for those causes? Mm-hmm.
1: So going back to the more common causes of stroke, uh, we use the TOAST uh, criteria to classify stroke typically. So we have cardiobolic stroke that can come from atrial fibrillation, reduced ejection fraction, or cardiomyopathy. This is gonna require you know, cardiac monitoring Uh, ECGs, Holter monitor, extended Holter monitors, and perhaps an implantable loop recorder if you're highly suspicious and haven't captured it. You also need to visualize the heart through an echocardiogram, whether it's transthoracic or transesophageal. Um, If you're looking for a cause such as a PFO, which would be considered a cardioembolic of sort, you can use a transcranial Doppler uh, bubble study to heighten your suspicion, and then you can look deeper with a transesophageal echocardiogram. Um, Artery to artery emboli, that work is often mostly done for you on first presentation, if you're seeing them acutely. If not, then you're going to need vascular imaging all the way down to the tip of the or the arch of the aorta. So you're going to look at their carotid arteries and all the arteries inside the brain looking for stenosis, Um, not just degree of stenosis, but the morphology certainly plays a role too. Very ulcerated, craggy looking plaque is highly suspicious for an artery-to-artery emboli. And you might want to use hydrostatin for remodeling and antiplatelet agents in an extended fashion for that. Mm -hmm. Um, Always think about intracranial atherosclerotic disease as well, and specifically in certain populations have a much higher uh, predominance of it. Mm -hmm. And then a large category of small vessel disease, multifactorial generally, things like smoking, type 2 diabetes, uh, hyperlipidemia, obstructive sleep apnea, um, these can be screened for with blood tests, such as LDL, um, HbA1c, and then of course, you know, screening for obstructive sleep apnea and treating inappropriately, as well as smoking cessation. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there's quite a large category of stroke that is defined as embolic stroke of unknown source. So a embolic appearing stroke, i.e. one that involves the cortex or perhaps multi-territory, and you've not been able to track down a cause with at least a 48-hour Holter monitor and an echocardiogram. So there's ongoing research in how to treat that. There's a large trial going on right now uh, called Arcadia um, that will help us out in the future.
0: Okay. And now really to sort of get onto what this podcast is about really, which is the diagnostic workup of ischemic stroke in young, pa- young adults uh, presenting with a stroke. So I presume um, you obviously have to think about all of those things that you've just mentioned for any stroke, including in young adults, but there might be additional thoughts that you have for this particular, um, you know, for this particular group of patients. Uh, Are you able to just sort of talk me through what your diagnostic workup of patients, of younger patients presenting with stroke would be? Uh, Maybe, I guess, alluding to some of these additional etiologies Mm -hmm. and how you would screen for them.
1: Yeah. So in addition to the regular stroke workup, which, which we just talked about, there's a much higher predominance of stroke caused by, uh, well, I guess we can group it into vascular categories, uh, prothrombotic states, cardiac problems, and rare genetic causes um, as well as a few other things like toxins And we will kind of go through each category. So for vascular, we break it into kind of a physical vascular problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this would be dissection, where there's a separation of the arterial lining, creating a, a little uh, clot focus that can go up and cause a stroke. You can look at CTA for that. You can, if you're very suspicious, you can also ask for an MRI with a T1 fat-saturated sequence, and you can see a crescent-shaped hyperintensity there. That's a mm-hmm. great, great clue, both in the vertebral arteries and the carotid arteries. Um,
0: Oh, sorry, any clues from the history with dissection that you often see?
1: Yeah, dissection people often present with a headache or neck pain. Um, they can see a Horner syndrome, typically in a carotid artery dissection, or perhaps a vertebral artery dissection that's caused a brainstem stroke as well, mm-hmm. consisting of ptosis, uh, meiosis, and uh, abnormalities in sweating or facial color change on one side as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, dissection can be much more common in those with connective tissue disorders like Marfan's or Ehlers-Danlos. Um Ehlers-Danlos, of course, is a collagen disorder and genetic uh, marker of coal one I believe. And Marfan syndrome is those long, tall, thin people with very long faces and the high arched palate that we all learned about in med school. They also have a much higher uh, predilection for aneurysms and valvular problems, which could also create uh, potential stroke foci.
0: Do you sometimes hear about dissection occurring after trauma? Mm-hmm. I mean can it sometimes be trauma that the patient may not even be aware of
1: absolutely uh dissection after an innocuous trauma is probably the more common presentation in my experience
0: mm-hmm. sometimes
1: you get it after people who are involved in contact sports or motor vehicle accident um but innocuous trauma such as a fast shoulder check uh, a strong cough or hard sneeze can can sometimes be enough to cause a dissection okay. so i have a pretty low threshold in imaging people who are including vascular imaging for people who are presenting with an ongoing headache uh, or neck pain that is, you know, unrelenting for some period of time, looking for a potential dissection. Great. Um, We can also think about the vasculidities. Um, Now these are not exceptionally common uh, if uh, on their own in isolation. So I'm looking for systemic involvement of other organs and blood tests like markers such as ESR, CRP, ANCA, ANA, ENA, um, Mm -hmm. those sorts of things. Uh, Moyamoya syndrome is becoming much more commonly diagnosed. Uh, There's Moyamoya disease which is likely a genetic cause and Moyamoya syndrome which can be seen in many um, populations such as neurofibromatosis, Down syndrome, Turner syndrome. Mm -hmm. It's much higher in things like sickle cell and thalassemia. Um, Also the other culprits uh, for stroke causes can cause a moya moya like presentation, such as poorly controlled diabetes, hypercholesterolemia, smoking, and then some drugs like cocaine and methamphetamines.
0: Okay, great. So you've got there uh, sort of, as you said, trauma, you can have um, problems with the physical structure of the blood vessels, um, or you can have uh, problems of the blood vessel themselves, either an inflammatory or non-inflammatory arteriopathy. And it sounds like, If not done already, in a young stroke patient, getting good vascular imaging from the uh, arch, uh, so from the aortic arch all the way up to the vertex, is of paramount importance.
1: Absolutely, anybody that is suspicious for stroke deserves vascular imaging, preferably CTA initially, rather than just carotid ultrasound.
0: Good. You mentioned about prothrombotic states. Um, Are you able to tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so some, some of the prothrombotic states are the kind of meat of the young stroke workup. Um, there's often discussion between hematology, and neurology, which ones are applicable. Um, as you know, most of the thrombophilic states that are commonly tested for um, are venous events rather than arterial. So then they only kind of apply if you can find a right to left shunt, i.e. a pulmonary AVM or a PFO. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thrombophilia, workup that I am most interested in arterial stroke without a shunt would be the antiphospholipid antibodies you know lupus anticoagulant anticardiolipin and beta-2 glycoprotein as well as homocysteine because these are going to be treatment changing uh, in the sense that you're moving from an antiplatelet medication to warfare.
0: Okay so uh, do, do you is that something you would routinely test for um, and then discuss with hematology afterwards or do you tend to have that discussion up front about what should be sent?
1: So, if somebody is coming in with, a re- with an acute stroke, um, you know, I think it varies place to place. Yep. We typically have a pro forma that allows people to order it in anybody less than age 55. Yep. Again, I am not too concerned about it. The benefit of having it on the pro forma is so that it's ordered and it doesn't kind of go by the wayside and people forget to order it. Yeah, um, yeah. Again, those venous ones like protein S, protein C, factor V, anti antithrombin, 3-prothrombin. They are not going to be so applicable, even if they are mildly deranged in somebody who's had an arterial event. Yeah. Now, if you're able to order them on admission uh, and then you go on to define uh, a right-left shunt, that is beneficial.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the, the challenges, isn't it? It's sometimes it's not uncommon, although these are rare disorders. Um, if you order it enough times, you do sometimes get results back mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. kind of are marginal or you're not quite sure what they mean. And I, th- I guess yeah. rediscussing in that context can be really important.
1: Definitely. And then keeping in mind that if you do order it later on, they are likely on an antiplatelet or anticoagulation, depending on their presentation, which yeah. can of course skew the results and make it pretty hard to interpret yeah uh other thrombotic states that we should think about are uh, malignancies Mm -hmm. so anybody presenting with stroke or multiple thrombosis including you know some venous things elsewhere uh certainly deserves a thorough malignancy workup sometimes including a full-body pet looking for anything Mm-hmm. And then pregnancy or the use of oral contraceptive pill, the combined oral contraceptive pill, can kind of create a hypercoagulable state leading towards CVSTs. Um, okay. I guess you can consider amniotic fluid bolus. That's not really thrombophilic, but a pregnancy state of stroke.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, um, so that's vascular problems. We've discussed the prothrombotic state. state. think the next thing you mentioned was cardiac disorders and you've already touched on this, um, a little bit. Um, you have to just expand a bit more for me.
1: Yeah. The cardiac disorders. So we look for the usual culprits, um, atrial fibrillation, reduced ejection fraction, perhaps a thrombus in the ventricle. Uh, But in the young people, the younger population, we want to look for other things, specifically patent foramen ovale or aneurysmal septum. So there's a lot of semi-new literature out there that's highly supportive of closing a patent foramen ovale if it meets the criteria. There's a scoring system called ROPE score, risk Mm -hmm. of paradoxical embolus. Of course, it's a score, so it's vulnerable to all sorts of, you know, Um, it it doesn't always hold the meaning that you want because it is just a score, but it's useful to help stratify people. So if you find a right to left shunt um, either with TCD or your echo, uh, applying the rope score is reasonable. What it does is basically uh, takes away or assesses the risk of the stroke being from the patent foramen of Valley Mm -hmm. in the absence of other causes such as hypertension, diabetes, uh, usual risk factors. So if you take, A young person who has no other risk factors and they've got a large right to left shunt um, it's worth closing it okay Um, the literature suggests looking for a grade three shunt or higher uh, on the tcd bubble or um, the echo with bubble or an aneurysmal septum that's highly mobile
0: okay and then uh, I think the final category you said was um, some of the rarer genetic causes um, for stroke. Uh, what, what are some of the more, I guess, none of them are common. So what, what are the, some <laughs> of the relatively more common uh, conditions that you might see?
1: Yeah. The commonly uncommon ones were things like catasil, Fabris and melas, in my opinion, these are ones that we always think about. Um, they're also highly tested for in your training. So it's good to be aware of them. catacyl being cerebral autosomal dominant arteriopathy with subcortical infarcts and leucencephalopathy. This is a young person who has multiple subcortical infarcts, as the name suggests. Um, They're ongoing. They can have seizures and neuropsychiatric issues as well. Obviously, with ongoing subcortical infarcts, they're highly at risk for early dementia. And they've got pretty good markers on the MRI that show widespread lesions throughout the white matter, often beginning bilaterally in the uh, anterior portion of the temporal pole as well. The Mm -hmm. gene that's identified is the NOTCH3 gene. There's also an autosomal recessive version of this called carousel. Okay. Much less common.
0: Excellent. So that's a a very thorough uh, sort of overview. And I guess, you know, as you said at the start, the, there are kind of no two um, patients the same with this. So it's not a case of, you know, one size fits all just because they're a young person and it's about thinking about it for that specific patient. What's the, what's the cause, for them, um, just to run through a couple of cases, if that's okay. So, um, I've got a 24-year-old male who's presented to hospital having woken up with weakness affecting the right side of his face and arm, and he's also noted to have an expressive dysphasia. He's otherwise fit and well, and is a keen sportsman, plays rugby, and um, no other significant medical history. The day prior to presentation, he mentioned to his girlfriend he was going to get an early night, and she was complaining of a new headache. On examination, he's got weakness affecting the right side of the face, which is forehead sparing. So that upper motor neuron pattern of weakness and weakness of the right arm as well with loss of sensation reported on that side. He has difficulty naming objects, but is able to follow simple commands. You also notice that his left pupil appears to be partially drooped and with a small small pupil compared to that on the left compared to the right. A non-contrast CT head scan is performed and shows an established infarct in the left MCA territory. So based on what you've heard there, you're able to just talk me through what you suspect might be the underlying cause for the stroke and how you'd investigate that further.
1: Yeah, so this young man, he's got a very good description of a Horner syndrome and, you know, a left cerebral infarct. Um, so based on history with the headache and the presence of the horners and a focal neurologic deficit, you'd be highly concerned about in left internal current artery dissection. Okay. So this guy needs a very urgent CTA, um, preferably. I guess he's already had the CT head. So I would want some vascular imaging. You can also use an MRI, but I think that's less helpful and less timely.
0: Yeah, I think as well, from a localization perspective, um, Obviously, this is one of those examples where because of uh, the ICA dissection being on the left, you get the ipsilateral symptoms affect, causing the horners on that side, whereas the weakness on the, the other side, I guess to the uninitiated, that could throw them off a little bit, but uh, yeah, not, not yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The sympathetics travel along the ipsilateral internal carotid artery. So it's, it's a nice pattern. Um, it's a great localizer. Uh, and and an interesting exam. Unfortunately, it's usually associated with some some stroke.
0: Yeah. Um, So uh, CT angiogram is done, and that confirms an extracranial dissection of the left internal carotid artery. So what would be your your management at this stage? Mm.
1: So at this point, I think beginning him on some antiplatelet medication. So if you have isolated dissection with no focal neurologic deficits, I think a standard or monotherapy with an antiplatelet medication is is preferred. Um, However, he does have stroke. So I think adding in a dual antiplatelet medication for a period of time to be determined later um, is reasonable. I'd like to re-image him again Uh, preferably in about three months, including vascular imaging to see if there's been resolution of the uh, dissection. And in this gentleman, I would certainly want to get into a little bit of family history. Have there been people prone to dissection or aneurysms looking for any potential connective tissue disorder as well?
0: Okay. Um, And the family wants to know about what the risks of this happening again. What are your thoughts regarding that? What would you tell them?
1: So, it quite depends on the history we want to get into it with him is this you, he is a rugby player so he has ongoing trauma to the neck or potential for it um, with his activities so if we consider it a traumatic dissection um and you re-image him and there's good resolution of it in three months i think the risks of it happening again are associated only with recurrent trauma Uh, Mm -hmm. If you don't have a traumatic history, again, including some of the innocuous traumas that we mentioned earlier, uh, then the risks of it recurring are somewhat higher. Uh, So a spontaneous internal carotid artery dissection, I would tend to leave those people that we don't have an inciting event on an antiplatelet medication um, lifelong, if they can, Mm -hmm. um, given the risk of it occurring again. And if you see abnormalities on the follow-up imaging, uh, I would tend to leave people on antiplatelet medication as well.
0: Great. And then uh, final case we'll be discussing is case two. So this is a 34 year old male who's reviewed on the stroke ward. So two days earlier, he presented with a headache that was associated with a visual disturbance. It was initially thought to be secondary to migraine, but he represented as his family kept noticing he was bumping into things on the left. Aside from a history of migraines, his medical history is otherwise largely unremarkable. But there is a strong family history of stroke on his father's side and his father did die of dementia, he has no siblings. On examination, he has a homonymous left inferior quadrantinopia. So to begin with, um, knowing that's the examination finding, so where does a left homonymous inferior quadrantinopia localize to?
1: So that would localize to the right parietal lobe,
0: yeah. And what about this presentation would put you off calling it migraine? I mean, I, obviously, the fact we're discussing it means it's probably not migraine. But are there any aspect, any other aspects on hearing that that you think that would be a bit odd for migraine?
1: Yeah, so some of the history certainly is off-putting for migraine. Unfortunately, a lot of young people Um, that present with stroke. Headaches are more common with stroke in young people. It isn't picked up initially because it is thought to be migraine, especially if they have a history of migraine. Migraine with aura is a vascular risk factor um, Mm. and higher risk of stroke. But what is abnormal for him, I think, are two major things. The persistence of a deficit um, Mm -hmm. certainly wouldn't be in keeping with migraine. Typically, visual aura resolves, you know, within a couple hours, and then it follows the typical history of development of headache. So mm-hmm. something that's been going on for him for two days it, that would likely not be a headache or a migraine, a mm-hmm. migraineous phenomenon of the visual disturbance, and then the aspect that it's more like a negative phenomena rather than a positive phenomena. Typically, migraine has a positive aspect to it. So, you know, scintillations or colors or mm-hmm. wavy lines on in the visual field or sensory symptoms that are positive, such as tingling versus absence of visual input or absence of feeling. Okay, So that's what would trigger me to image this young man.
0: And you can see the CT scan there. So um, are you have to describe what you can see there on the non-contrast CT head.
1: Yeah, so we have an axial here, non-contrast CT head and the most striking abnormality is a wedge-shaped hypodensity in the right parietal lobe. It looks like there's a little bit of laminar necrosis developed as well. So we can okay. see it's quite established.
0: And uh, what tests would you do now? What, what, what do you think needs to be done here?
1: So, the first step I would do would be uh, vascular imaging uh, mm-hmm. because he is at the CT. So, I think it would be good to get the vascular imaging. Everybody with stroke deserves vascular imaging. Um, I would probably work up a full stroke, full young stroke um, panel for him, including MRI brain.
0: Okay. And uh, you can see the MRI there underneath. So, um, there's a few things there. So, first of all, we've got a DWI scan. Um, just talk us through that and what that confirms about this stroke for you.
1: Mm-hmm. So we have, you know, a DWI-restricting lesion in the right parietal lobe, the same area that we saw affected on the CT head. And it mm-hmm. looks like it's got an ADC correlate to go along with that. So that tells us it's it's quite an acute stroke, typically less than 14 days that we can see those DWI changes so bright.
0: Yeah, okay. And then the other sequences that are done is a, a T axial T2 scan you can see there. And that's also um, reported as being quite abnormal. Um, just talk me through what you can see and uh, what this is suggestive of to you.
1: Mm-hmm. So we'll keep in mind that this is quite a young man. We see some uh, several subcortical strokes in there, hyperintensities uh, in the subcortical white matter. But what's, those can be common in people with migraine with aura as well. But what is very abnormal for him is the hyperintensities we see in the anterior portion of the temporal poles, as well as posteriorly. So it is very concerning um, for something like Cadasil.
0: Okay, and indeed that patient um, did go on to have genetic testing of the Notch3 gene, and he was found to have mutations that confirm the diagnosis of Cadasil. So um, yeah, that, that's uh, I thought those two were quite nice examples there of how the same sort of diagnosis, which is an acute stroke, um, can be due to very different etiologies there in, uh, in different people. Um, Well, thank you for your time, uh, Regan. And that's been really helpful to talk through with you. No problem. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.